Welcome to Fem Collective with Katie, Stacy, and Mai. All right. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the topic of racism. Um, this can be a very sensitive topic for a lot of people, and we fully recognize that. But we we felt strongly as a group that this is something that Fem Collective needed to go ahead and jump on and start talking about and starting the conversation. So that's why we're talking about it on today's episode. If you don't know, we are a diverse group at Fem Collective. We have myself, I'm Stacy. I am predominantly of African-American descent. Um, and according to genetic testing, there is some European in there as well, um, around 20%, but I identify myself as Black as far as my race is concerned. And we also have Mayrelis, and she is of Dominican descent. She is Afro-Latina. That's how she identifies herself. And then we also have our beloved Katie, and she is predominantly of European descent. So those are all of the perspectives that we have today. Um, and just as a full disclosure, we're, we're just primarily going to be sharing our personal experiences today and individually from our different races. We are not speaking for an entire group of people. So, you know, as I get started on my personal stories for me, I'm not speaking for the entire Black community. I am speaking for Stacy, uh, my personal experiences and how racism has impacted me personally. So we just want you to keep that in mind as you listen. We also want you to listen with an open heart and a receptive heart um, for understanding, relatability, and just further insight into how this has impacted all three of us. I wanted to start um, with the definition of racism, kind of taking a cue from Katie and being intellectual here. <laughs> and the big piece of the definition that I want to start off with is that um, racism is the belief that one's race is inherently superior or inferior to another, just simply on the basis of race. And so I just kind of wanted to start it for me personally, um, just growing up and my background to give some context. I primarily grew up in white communities. So a lot of the time in different instances, whether it was sports teams or my classes, I was primarily the only Black person in the in those in those communities and in those situations. And I just remember even early on as a child, there weren't really any direct experiences that I had that influenced this thought process, but I kind of always had this looming sense that I needed to be on my P's and Q's. I knew that there were some individuals in white communities that may look at me differently because I'm black. So that guided how I navigated the world. I knew that I wanted to make sure I performed at the highest level um, and that I enunciated my words and that I spoke clearly in a way that I wasn't labeled as, oh, she talks quote unquote black, whatever that means. So I was very careful around that. And at the time, not even realizing that that probably contributed to some of the anxiety that I have now, because it puts you on some kind of edge when you're constantly trying to make sure that you show people that you don't fit into the bias or the discriminative, the discriminatory thoughts that they may have about where I fall in a group of a race. And so that's the earliest um, experiences that I can remember as far as how race was impacting me. And even as I grew up further and through college and then through getting into my career, there was always this sense of, let me make sure I come off very professional, just in case they already have some, some preconceived thoughts about how I may interact in this setting. Let me make sure I'm very careful that I never come off too angry or too opinionated so that I don't come off as the angry Black woman because I want to know how to navigate this area, this arena properly. I want to make sure I can excel in my career and be successful. And so these thoughts are always have always been in the back of my mind. And that's something that's probably been, like I said, since childhood um, for me. I just want to share some personal stories that have impacted me. Um, I'm going to share a rather recent one that's the most clear in my mind. Um, and as most of us know, there has been a lot of issues with Black people being targeted um, by the police. Um, I've experienced that in several situations, not only personally, but also witnessing close family members, um, especially men deal with this, which has been 
very hard to talk about and very heartbreaking. But most recently, whenever there was a lot of issues in the most recent killing with Breonna Taylor, very shortly after her killing, I had an incident where I was at home um, by myself this day. Um, I'd already taken my, my kids to school and it was like one of my, I remember it being one of my first days off in a long time because COVID had been going on and my kids were at home for a long time. And so there was like a no days off <laughs> type of situation. So I was finally getting a chance to get some rest. And I remember going to sleep and hearing this loud banging on my door, like nonstop. And typically I'm like, oh, it's somebody delivering a package and you know, I'm just going to ignore it. But the banging would not stop. And so I remember like getting out of my sleep and like rushing to the door and I'm checking who it is. And I see that it is two police officers. They, they didn't have their, um, their full uniform on, but I could tell by their bulletproof vests and their guns that they were police officers. And the only reason I answered is because they would not stop banging. And um, I opened the door and they start like firing away questions at me. And I just remember feeling the sense of panic and like fight or flight, like let me be on defense and let me also kind of similar to what I talked about before, let me also play nice because I don't want them to see me and as a threat or anything like that. Um, so I'm trying to be polite yet also on defense to protect myself. And they're asking me questions about people in my neighborhood and asking if they can come um, inside my house and go through my backyard so that they can look at things around my house. And I just remember feeling so uncomfortable and telling them no, and you know, them continually trying to get in like in a very aggressive manner. And they finally stopped asking me questions and would finally leave. And I closed the door and I literally broke down crying. Like, and I, in a full panic mode and I didn't understand at the time, like, why am I responding like, this. Like it was just, there's just two police officers came to my door, right? Like, what's the big deal? You know, but as I start processing it and I start thinking about it, I'm like, I've seen other people that look like me that are being killed when they are innocent. So who's to say that another police officer is going to look at me like that? And that's the trauma I was carrying that I wasn't aware of until I had to face it myself. Um, and so that was something that I had to talk through with a friend a couple of times just to kind of process it all out. And I remember telling my husband about it and he, he could sense that he was very protective of me too. And he was just so upset that he wasn't there when it happened and that he couldn't protect me. And he knew what I was going through because he's had his own issues with the police as well too. And I remember also another incident, and this was back when I was in high school and I grew up, um, like I said, predominantly in white communities. And I was in a suburb at the time of Dallas and driving um, with my little brother and I in the car and he had to be in middle school at the time. And we were driving like maybe like five minutes away from my home and a police officer pulled me over. And I was confused because I was like, mm, I know I wasn't speeding or anything like that. Um, so when he pulled me over, he basically was telling me he pulled me over because I stopped too far in front of the white traffic line. Like, is that even a rule? <laughs> Like, so then he's asking and interrogating, asking questions, like, who is this? I'm like, this is my baby brother. Like, we're just, you know, driving, like what, what's going on and asking where my parents worked and just irrelevant questions that shouldn't have been asked. And these are the types of things that have happened to me. And I know that, it, like I said, I'm not speaking for other people, but I know these types of things have happened to others as well. And then for me personally, a lot of the fear that I carry around is primarily for the black men in my family, because I, I know that they have a harder time navigating this than even I do um, as a woman and how they're perceived as a threat. And knowing that the black men in my family, my husband, my brother, and my dad, and the different experiences they've had to deal with, like personally, and the fear that I have for them um, is always kind of looming in the back of my mind. And thankfully, like I'm a woman of faith. So I'm constantly, you know, reaffirming my trust in the Lord and reaffirming my trust that they'll be protected. But it's always something that keeps popping up in my head that I think about continually. The other thing I kind of wanted to talk about is, is an acknowledgement piece that's important for me. And I just want to talk about the fact that we're not that far removed from 
more of the overt racism that has taken place before this before these current times. In these current times, we still have forms of overt racism, but a lot of it is more from historical issues that are still transpiring today or what we call microaggressions, which maybe we can possibly get into into another episode. But I just want to talk about a little bit about the pain that I carry for my ancestors and for my family. I mean, we're, we're talking about like my mom and my dad. We're talking about stories that my mom and dad have shared with me that where they were harassed by the KKK where they were called the N-word. My mother grew up in a time where the schools were still segregated, um, which she had to transition once the rules were changed with that, once the laws were changed and they started integrating into schools when she was in the fourth grade. And she had so much anxiety and panic around that, like having to go from an all black community to now being integrated into a world that likely did not really care for her in the way that they should. and her telling me the story of how she would get kicked out of places for being black. She got kicked out of a laundromat. And this is not like my great grandma, like this is my mother. So this isn't that far removed, which is a big message I want to get out there. And then my dad has told me stories about how he would just be walking in his neighborhood and people would be pointing and say, there goes some in words and just the different stories that they've dealt with. And there's a direct correlation into how severe racism was as you historically go further back in history from what my parents dealt with to my grandmothers, to slavery, to the lynching and the devaluation of black people. And it gets back to that definition of racism. If we don't really deem you as worthy, it's nothing to kill you. It's nothing to lynch you. And there's a pain that black people possess. And again, I'm not speaking for everyone, but for me personally, and I know others too, we carry this pain of our ancestors, like knowing the brutality of how they were treated and mistreated and how deep that runs. I have story after story I can tell you of how my grandmother had a family member who was killed in front of a place of business in pure daylight as a black man. Like there's so many stories that if you actually just start looking and asking questions, you'll you'll be able to hear them and have some insight to them. So there's so much trauma that the Black community has experienced, trauma personally, trauma in seeing other Black people go through, through things, and then the trauma of knowing what your family has gone through. That's even worse than what you might go through today. I want to transition a little bit into present day with, you know, the events that have happened with George Floyd and the protesters. Um, and in a, on a brighter note, um, one thing that really resonated with me when all of these things started happening and America was forced to see what was what has been going on for years, this is nothing new, is that it was so dynamic to witness a lot of the protests were predominantly white people in a lot of situations. And I have never seen that before. And it made me think back to the protests and the civil rights movements with Dr. Martin Luther King, where you would see some white people scattered in the crowds. And that was a beautiful thing to witness as well, too. But to this level, I I have never seen it. And so it was very, um, very encouraging to see that. But it's also been hard for a lot of Black people, too, because now there is more of an awareness. And so there's more discussions that are taking place, which is vital. But it's hard for some of us to talk about these things. And then we also know we have a responsibility to talk about these things because we need transformation and we need things to move forward as a country. And I think some of the things that I have witnessed personally and the conversations that have been ensuing and that have been happening is we think that there can't be both things. And one of the examples of that is we think that we can't have pride in our country and also recognize that there are ugly parts to this country, that there are broken parts to this country. And that we need to recognize that the way that this country was fundamentally built, with a lot of it being on on the backs of slaves who have never been compensated or been able to start to build wealth from what we built in this country and their brutality and how that blood is shed and weaved into the very fabric of this country. And you can't just undo that with some civil rights laws changing. That's that's not going to happen. And that's something that I want our communities to be aware of. Um, You can be thankful for the sacrifice of the soldiers, and you can also recognize that we don't have full freedom in this country for everyone who is a minority. It can be both and, and I think we need to recognize that as well. 
The other message that has been on my heart to encourage everyone to do is to hold space for conversations about race, just like we're doing today, um, and do it with empathy and unconditional love. And I'm speaking to all sides. I'm not speaking to just the white community, but there's a lot of white people that I've talked to who say they, they're so scared of saying the wrong things, which then there's no conversation that's even had. And we don't want that to happen either. I just think that that's something that we have to be more open to as we also just need to recognize that it's okay to talk about race and it's okay to have that conversation. And I talked a little bit about, you know, how we're starting to see a lot more white people participate in the movement. And I I can't have this conversation without shouting out Katie. And I know she does not necessarily want me to do this and she's not looking for any recognition because that's just not who she is, but she's just a phenomenal example of someone who's having the conversation. You're not someone who stands by while someone makes a racial comment that's hurtful. You don't sit there and think, man, that was something horrible to say. You call it out and you say, that's unacceptable. And I'm going to call it out with boldness. We need more of that. We need more of that today. And you also celebrate loudly when people of color are promoted or excel. So that's my biggest message to today. We need allies and we need white people like Katie to shut down racist comments and behavior because a lot of people are not going to say those types of things around minorities or black individuals. So for me, I really would implore the white communities to acknowledge that there is still a deep, deep rooted problem here that we can continue to unwind through conversation and action and acknowledgement. And what I've learned through my friendships with Maya and Katie is we are all a lot more alike than we think we are. Thanks, Stacey. Uh, Definitely for sharing that and being so open and so, you know, direct, but then also I don't know, just transparent. And, and it's something that I I know um, is very uncomfortable for, for you, but then for all of us, even it's even hard to hear, right? So while I know that some of the stories you've shared, I knew them already. Um, I don't know them all, obviously. I knew them, but it didn't change the fact that it's still, I felt it, right? Just like it's hard to tell, sometimes it's hard to hear. And it's not because we're denying it, it's just because it's uncomfortable. And then that's where I feel like this entire conversation, you know, this, this episode, but it's just, it's just important. So thank you for sharing that. And what I'll say is, you know, a lot of times people just look at me and they'll assume, especially where I live now in Texas, that's just a black woman, right? Um, which I am, I am a black woman um, of, of Hispanic descent, but what it comes down to is like, even though I may be the same skin color or, or ra- identify the same race as another fellow uh, person of color. It doesn't mean my experience is the same as them. It could be very, very different. And in my case, being Dominican, I think just adds an entire layer um, to, to the race type of racism that I've, I've experienced being that I grew up in a very different environment than Stacy, right? So I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. The community I grew up in, everybody looked like me. Like there was no, I I was never, I was rarely, (laughs) to be honest, in my young, younger years before I even started high school, I was rarely around white people. The white people I was around were probably like business owners. And most of them, if if I'm going to be completely honest, were Jewish, right? (laughs) Because Brooklyn has a lot of Jewish people. So then they have their own, you know, stigmas and people treat them differently, even though they are fair skinned, right? So I didn't deal with a lot of Caucasians and my experience was also something to where I grew up in the hood. The N-word was used freely, comfortably. And to be completely honest with you, I didn't even know that was a bad word. Um, most of just my, in my young, young years, my naive, ignorant years, I'll, I'll call them, I used it loosely um, in conversations with my brothers, my friends. I mean, it was something that almost like, you know, I'm gonna take back a word that was used against me and I'm going to just use it as a term of endearment. That's almost how I grew up using it. So that's where it's a little different. And then also it was so much so that I do call it naive, ignorant years, because I grew up thinking that racism wasn't a thing anymore. And I'll say that because that's mainly because of my Hispanic, my Hispanic, um, culture, right? So, as I've said before, my parents immigrated to this country in the 80s. And a lot of times, 
my mother, as, as as strong of a woman she is, I was raised in a single parent household. But the thing that she taught us was do not ever let anyone or yourself use your race, your ethnicity, your gender as an obstacle to what you want to accomplish in this country, in your life. So that's more so how I was raised, which is definitely empowerment. And I, I love my mother for that. But I think that unfortunately it was it was undertoned with more so, you know, because we came to this country and we have so many things afforded to us by being here, you know, racism, how bad can it really be? How, how is it still relevant today? Right. And from that perspective, growing up in that, that that's honestly what I believed. I, I would say I've evolved. I think I've definitely my eyes have been opened in so many ways. That's why higher education is so important when you're able to interact with people that don't just look like you and don't just have your experiences. And that's more so where a lot of my my ideals evolved. Because a lot of the racism and I'll call it colorism here in this conversation that I dealt with came from my fellow Hispanics, my fellow Dominicans my even family members. And that's where a lot of times, unfortunately, because racism was denied in, in my culture, the way I was raised, I never knew, I never knew how to identify or even like call out and say what you said hurt me. Right. In most, most instances, it was more so like, you're being too sensitive, get over yourself. Clearly I love you. Right. And so what I said, don't take it so personal. And that's what I dealt with a lot. And it was just very uncomfortable. And it'd be little things like I'll give some examples similar to what Stacy did there. But it was very in, in subtle ways to where um, I would be told in Spanish, a lot of these conversations were in Spanish, where I'd be told things like, oh, you need to thank God because you have that nose, right? Your nose, it's, it's, it's so fine and, and, and thin. And you need to thank God that you have that nose. Tell me how that would make a nine-year-old child feel. I was so confused when I heard that that I went to my mom and I was like, mommy is something is what's, what's going on with my nose. I'm very confused. And, and just think of it, right. These are the subtle ways people would say things. And you're just like, I was confused. And my mom, all she told my mom understood. So my mom was a very, is a very fair skinned Dominican woman of European descent, which I should have said earlier. And my dad is a dark skinned uh, Dominican of African Haitian descent. Right. So I'm technically a biracial Dominican, if you want to call it that. And so my mom dealt with a lot of racism just, just because she married a black man, quote unquote, and had to deal with that and raised biracial looking children to where I remember one time when I was five, and this is imprinted in my mind as if I can tell you what everybody was wearing. I was at the doctor's office with my mom and this uh, white Cuban man, I even remember what he said and where he was from, was yelling at my mother, a man we don't even know, telling her, how could you have ruined your race in that way by bringing into this world dark-skinned children? Do you understand how much they will suffer and you will suffer because of the bad decisions that you have made? I was a five-year-old and I remember my mom with her head down crying because what do you do? What do you do in that situation to shield your child, to protect your child, but then also to just keep your head down and not cause a scene. My mom had a conversation with me that day and her comments were very, were, were appropriate for my age. And all she said was, there are a lot of people out there with hate in their hearts. And sometimes we just need to ignore them. And so that's just, I just wanted to give you that. Like that's almost how I was raised. And I don't think it was, my mom is not racist and my mom understands, you know, how hard life is. But at some point you want to protect your children, unfortunately, to the point where you adopt almost a certain level of toxic pos positivity. That's how I want to call it, where you don't really try to push uh, people to think the way you do and be open minded. You just kind of want to ignore them. And so being that, that those are the experiences I experienced just with people I didn't know, people I did know, where I was being asked, I was constantly asked questions. <laughs> and they were all very ignorant questions. And it would be almost like I almost saw it as, well, maybe I, nine-year-old, 12-year-old, 18, 21-year-old my is supposed to educate you on how certain things work. So even growing up, I would be asked by family members that didn't know my dad, and they'd say, you know, your mom is so white. Why are you so dark? Okay. So I, I, I gave them a biology lesson, right? Like there's a dominant gene. There's a recessive gene, right? Fair skinned people 
have the recessive gene. And that's where literally that's how I would approach it. And it wasn't until I would be lying in bed at night that I would almost reflect and think, why are they asking me these questions? Do they not? Are they not educated? That's almost how I saw it. Like, do they not understand certain basic things that I was taught in elementary school? So in being that a lot of times I, I experienced uh, subtle microaggressions, we call them now, but just racist comments from family members and fellow Hispanics, I, it wasn't until I moved to Texas that I, I really was able to open up my eyes and understand that racism was very, very much still a part of this country and a part of, of how my mom would put it, inside the hearts of many people that I, I would come in contact with. And I think this is where, you know, God brought me to Texas, I believe, to, to make me a better, just a better person in so many ways, but understand things for what they are. Before I was of the belief in New York where it's not a thing anymore, right? We can accomplish all the things we can. Look at everything my family has been afforded. Look at everything I've been afforded. If racism was real, still a thing, I wouldn't be able to have what I have. While here I understand that there are certain policies and systemic racism that's ingrained in, in so many different parts of this country. And so that doesn't mean that I can't succeed, but I am being pushed to succeed in spite of those things. And so um, I, again, here in Texas would find myself trying to educate people and tell them and explain to them why, why is it that I know Spanish, even though I'm black, right? So I'd give them a little geography lesson. And that's kind of the funny, the funny questions. But then I'd have different comments where people would ask me, you know, oh, wow, I don't know many coloreds like you. And it's almost like, oh, okay. Um, is that still a word we use in, in the 2000s? <laughs> so it's, I share all these little tidbits because I mean it, right? Like we, Stacey said, there's so much to share that um, unfortunately, I, to be honest, I don't want to talk about it all day. And I don't think anybody wants to hear about it all day. But the things that I will say is that today, as I've evolved, as I understand racism for what it is, I do try my best to have the tough conversations with my fellow Hispanics and my family members, right? Those people really that I hold near and dear. People to where I'm not gonna use it as an educational moment. I'm just gonna use it as a, you know, dig deep and soul searching moment. Let's understand why is it that you believe what you believe and who do you hang around with? How, how big is, is, is your circle for you to know that, no, not every black person lives in the hood. Every black person is not on welfare. Every fellow brown, Hispanic, Mexican is not undocumented, right? There's so many things that when you really have conversations with people, you realize like their circle is very small. Their mind is small, but it's because they haven't really put themselves out there sometimes because sometimes it's truly just that's their heart. I will protect my own peace by not putting myself in those conversations. My focus here is on right now on my children and the impact that I know they will have in the future of this country. Make sure that I educate them and bring them up in a way where they they embrace their Hispanic culture as much as their African-American culture, because my babies are black and they're Hispanic. And it's something that we're so proud of and we talk about constantly. And so I focus on that. I focus on making sure my children are bold, that I am bold enough to have the hard conversations when necessary, appropriate. And then I also one thing I do want to share is just that sometimes we really have to look within ourselves and identify the racist ideals that we have within us. May it be that we understand to be subconsciously or, or, or just have been taught because it, it, it just takes a lot of a self-reflection and being aware enough to know and to, to, to slowly build the courage to call someone else out when you can call yourself out. So that's honestly just like where I, I how I know I've evolved and I have so much to learn um, because I'm perfect. And there's just an understanding where I was raised a certain way, but that doesn't mean that's how I have to be forever. And my mom, my mom chose to come to this country so that I could have a better life than what she did, more opportunities than she did. And so I do take it upon myself as a responsibility to make sure that I am proud of my American um, country, but then also identify the things that still have areas of, of growth and do my part to make sure that we are better than we are today in 10, 10, 20, 50 years however long we're going to be here for. I share all that just to, just to give a slightly different perspective on how racism can play out in, in, in different people of color's lives. But then also just like Stacey, I am also encouraged by, by people like my wonderful friend Katie and the different allies that I've encountered. So 
every day. I am so grateful for both of your friendships and I think you're brave and brilliant and kind and compassionate and all of these things. And today though, I am feeling it even more hearing you both talk about these experiences and, and just being able to finish the conversation and to look on the bright side. It's just so encouraging. You both are very inspiring to me as friends. And I mean, there's just so much I want to comment on, on what you, all, all the things that you said, but my, I think you were so brave today to share your transformation. A lot of the things you said today are hard to admit and no one would have faulted you if you didn't admit how you felt when you were young and in your echo chamber in Brooklyn. Um, Stacy, the weight that you carry, how you so beautifully said it, you know, the weight of your ancestors, the weight that you carry around with you all the time would be exhausting and you still do it. You do it all. And thank you for sharing all of that with us. Now, I, I grew up for context, you know, we talk about a lot of this in our first episode, but you know, I, um, I'm white, like Stacy said, that's how I identify. I grew up in a very small town in rural West Texas. Um, I went to a, a university, uh, Texas tech university in Lubbock that was also very, very white and I didn't have a lot of exposure to people of color, although where I did grow up in rural West Texas, it's probably um, half and half Hispanic and white. So I did have some of that exposure, but I don't recall. I mean, maybe I could count maybe one or two black people that I grew up with. And so I didn't have exposure to many people of color in college was my first experience. And I'm still pretty good friends with one of the girls that was my neighbor at tech and she ran track and was from Dallas. Well, I think like DeSoto or Decatur, like somewhere just South of Dallas. Um, and she and I are still really good friends, but we both learned a lot from each other in college. She's like, can I ask you questions? And I'm like, can I ask you questions? <laughs> and it was really great. Like this really kind of exchange of information of our different cultures, because neither one of us had spent much time with the other one. And so that was kind of my first experience where I'm like, okay, I'm so glad someone was open to me asking all these questions. You know, there's this long road of, of evolution for me, but I'll get right to it. It was when um, Black Lives Matter uh, became like a predominant organization in the media. And uh, Stacy alluded to this earlier, but, you know, a lot of police brutality incidents uh, that were finally captured on cell phones and we could no longer deny it. We couldn't, um, you know, ignore it any longer. And it wasn't new. It was just finally right here in our face. And I, I have a friend that I work with, um, who had grown two grown kids and she's black. Um, I asked her one day what she thought about this movement. And in a very impassioned way, she told me about her own experiences which I truly think are the most powerful things. Like, yes, it is so important for us to watch what's going on on these videos of people being murdered. That is very impactful. But when you talk to someone you like, love, care about, respect, um, you know, want the best for, and they're telling you some heartbreaking stories, it changes you. And so when she told me the story of, sitting her seven-year-old son down one day because someone at school called him the N-word. And she had to explain to him that there are going to be people in this world that are going to hate you without ever knowing you. And I'm so sorry. And I don't know why. And I just, um, I just couldn't even imagine. I wasn't a mom then or anything, but I couldn't imagine breaking the heart of such an innocent child to tell them that like someday someone's going to hate you and for no reason and you're wonderful and you're great and you're perfect and we love you. And, and how can they hold those two ideas? Like, I don't know how the two of you do it, but hearing our friend at work talk about that was just heartbreaking for me. 
And, and the craziest thing is that, you know, hearing you even say that I got teary eyed. No, I have not had to have that conversation with my son, but it's coming. And it's something that I feel like as time goes on, it's a conversation you have to have with your children as they get the younger and younger. It gets the, 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 the age that it's appropriate is even younger than it used to be. And that's where my husband and I are actually trying to figure out now, when do we try to explain to him these things? but still try to preserve the innocence that a, a, a normal child should have. And that's the biggest dilemma I think that, that we have now. Just wanted to add something to that. I have a black son as well. And I'm going to try to say this without crying because <laughs> y'all know I love my babies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a, a topic of conversation that I've been hearing too that resonated with me is that, and especially it's real life for me. I mean, so many people in so many different races, they find my son so adorable and so charming and he's so handsome and he's so cute and so sweet. And it's like, when is that transition going to happen when people don't see him like that anymore? Because he's going to start to look like a man. He's going to look like a strong black man. And so I, that's, that's one of the fears for me that I didn't really talk about yet because it's very hard to talk about that um, without getting really emotional but when are we going to have that talk and I'm proud that I know that I have a husband that's going (laughs) to thankfully be able to step up and help that conversation through but it's something that um, moms of black sons carry with them yeah I've I've heard that kind of a the phrase is when does my son stop being cute and start being a threat those things are heartbreaking. Like my daughter, I will not have these conversations with her in the context of her, of her experience. I will have them in the context of, okay, your friends of color, their parents are having these discussions with them. You need to be alert to the real world experience that they're having, and you need to protect them in ways that you can. Okay. Like, of course, be wonderful friends, just like, you know, the three of us are, but like Stacy mentioned, when someone says something horrible and hurtful that is based on race or a feeling of superiority, you do not stand silently by. And that's, that's the way I'll talk to her about it. But, um, you know, when this person at work, the same person who had this story about her son coming home and her having to have this talk with her son just a year ago, I called her to talk about something else. And she said, this weekend, my son, who I think is now, I don't know, 28, he's almost 30, maybe. She said, this weekend, my son was driving home to see me. Um, And while we were on the phone, he got pulled over by the police. You know, I think about this in my situation. If I was on the phone with my parents and I got pulled over, I'd be like, oh man, let me call you back in a second. You know, I need to deal with this. For her, her experience And she told me this through tears was that she begged him to just do whatever the police officer said. I know that you're a strong, you know, independent man. I know that you don't think that you should be treated like the way that they might potentially treat you right now. Please don't talk back. Please don't say anything that that could make them potentially want to harm you. Please, please, please. She hit her knees in the bathroom. She prayed through tears as she sobbed and waited for him to call her back. Like people like to sometimes argue uh, people of colors lived experiences with data or, you know, some other thing that they have read somewhere. But when you hear those stories, how can you try to challenge the feelings and the experiences these people have had that have led them to this result Her son is getting pulled over. She begs him to leave her on the phone so she can hear everything. She begs him not to say anything because she doesn't want him to die. That is, that's the bottom line. And so instead of trying to dissuade someone from the experience they've already had in their lives by saying, well, actually, you know, black people are only killed at 0.008% compared to blah, blah, blah. I mean, are you listening at all? Like just listen to their experience, just listen to what they've been through and believe them. You don't have to show them some contrasting data that you read on some website when they're telling you their personal lived experiences. And I think that's what really changed me. That changed me from questioning other people's experiences 
to like, right in my face, how could I not have seen this? How have I not, you know, been open to this forever um, and try to understand this? And I credit her to this day and she knows it and she knows I'm talking about it right now. <laughs> and she cried when I asked her if I could share it. Um, and I told her, please don't, don't stop. Don't stop sharing your stories. Like this is so important. And I'm so grateful that she did that for me. Uh, these girls here, the two of you, I've heard most of your stories, not all of them. Many of them were surprises today, as you talked about little, you know, uh, different experiences you've had. Um, but it really puts into focus just how simple my life can be. Stacy said that we're a lot more alike than we are different. And that's true. If you've heard any of these uh, episodes before this, we are very similar in a lot of ways. We are wives, moms, um, you know, career focused women, strong, empowered, uh, bold. We are cousins and aunts and sisters and all sorts of things that are very similar to us, but I do not have this extra layer, this extra heavy weight that I carry around in my life. And I think that that's really important to see, you know, anyone who's listening right now can, can tell that. Anyone who listens to these stories will be able to identify with one of the three of us. And I hope that whoever does identify with my story realizes how much your friends of color are carrying around with them and realize that and be compassionate for their life experiences and figure out ways to support them if they need it. Stacy was so eloquent when she said this earlier, but about, you know, Black people or people of color in general have a, can have a hard time um, answering even well-meaning questions from white people about, okay, well, can you tell me about this and what's your experience with this thing? And can you explain to me your culture about this? And why is it different from mine? And it can be exhausting. I am certain of it. And you two have led me so well through this journey. You have never made me feel that way, even though I have felt that way myself. And I've asked you, is this too much? you know, is this too hard to discuss? And I appreciate you being so open and honest. And it really has. Um, I, I think the result is that I am a much stronger ally because of you. Um, and so I just want to thank you for doing that for me. And, you know, sometimes putting aside the uncomfortability or the anxiety or the sadness that it can bring up to discuss these things. So I love you both. And so there's just, there's really one last thing I wanted to share and it's super positive. It's a great transformational story. And it's about my dad. A lot of these things are very hard to admit. I know they were hard to admit for him, but I am so lucky that he's letting me share this. And I could not be more proud of him um, for the end result of this story. So when I talked to him about sharing the story, he kind of gave me a little bit of a timeline. And in context, he grew up in you know, rural parts of Arkansas and Louisiana, and then moved to Houston when he was kind of an early teen um, and grew up there. But he was a golf pro, very much in the white male upper middle class, um, like pro golfer, uh, sold commercial real estate later in his life, uh, just really very much a traditional conservative in Texas. And um, he had a lot of racist ideals that he was brought up with, that he carried long and late into his life. And in 2006, he said that, and I remember this trip, we went to DC, my, my mom's family is from Virginia. So we went to kind of do like a little exploration of where our family, you know, began and where they were from. And we stopped in Andover, Maryland. And I don't know if you two have ever been there, but from what I remember, I should have probably done some research on the city, but from what I remember, we pulled into like a shopping center and we were going to get like fast food somewhere. And every car was like luxury, high-end, beautiful, like Range Rovers and, you know, whatever the other luxury cars are, <laughs> but, and every single person was black. And we have, we had never been exposed to that before this, like, wealthy, highly educated, all black community. And I think that's why exposure matters. Um, a lot of the time, because it can break a stereotype that you might have, like my said, all people of color are not from the hood. 
So, you know, we go and visit Andover, Maryland. And I think my dad's like, whoa, I've never seen this before. Like, this is so interesting. And I remember him commenting on it, not in a negative way, but being like, wow, guys, do you see this? Have you ever seen something like this before? And my mom, of course, is like, what are you talking about? Like, don't point this out, you know? Like, yes, black people can be wealthy and educated and oh my gosh, stop it, you're embarrassing me. But, um, you know, in 2008, he voted for Obama. That was a big deal for him. He was really sold on like the hope and change and couldn't even believe how wonderful he thought this man was. And then I think five or six years ago, after... I had kind of a transformation around Black Lives Matter and police brutality and that kind of thing. I had a discussion with him on white privilege and he was so um, defensive, so angry that I would even tell him that he was privileged. You know, do you have any idea what I've gone through for you kids? And, you know, I've worked so hard and I tried and I tried really hard to explain it. Like, it's not that you haven't worked hard, but it's that you don't have these other barriers that have prevented you from being able to achieve the fruits of your labor. And you had a head start, you know, that's it. Like you had a head start from everybody else. And I think I could see kind of um, that there was some recognition or some resonation with him. And weeks or months later, he told me like, I think I get it. I think I understand what you're saying. And I mean, that was so huge for our family. I mean, my sister and brother and I were all kind of on the same page and my mom too, but it's like my dad coming around was like, okay, what's going on here. But then this is the really, really great part is that in 2018, my parents were on their way back from like a cross country road trip that they took. And on the way back, my mom's like, you know, I'd really like to do this civil rights tour in Alabama. And my dad's like, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't really want to do that. That's not really like of interest to me. And she's like, I really do want to. And so they went and, um, when they walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge um, in Selma and when they went to Birmingham and went to Montgomery to see the lynching museum and the equal justice initiative, my dad said to me that he felt sick and ashamed of the racist ideas that he's had in the past and ashamed that he has not fully understood the true plight of what happened to black people in this country. And he now understands the racist policies that keep this very broad group of people um, from being able to achieve fully what they want to. When he went to the lynching museum, he said one of the biggest things that really got him was finding the counties that he grew up in and looking at the number of people that were lynched in the counties where he grew up. And when faced with that, he could not ignore that any longer. This was no longer something separate from him. This was something that is part of the fabric of American history. And I think he finally realized that. And so this is a really wonderful story because now he won't tolerate racist ideas or derogatory racist terms of people that are his friends He actually talks about how hard it is to have friends now (laughs) because of his, because of this newfound transformation enlightenment. And he, but he said he would never, he would never go back. He's so glad. And it's the right thing that he knows this now and he's faced with it. And I, you know, there are things that he does sometimes where he'll, um, he'll say a word and he'll look at me and he'll be like, is that the, is that the right word? Is that word? Okay. And I'm like, that is the right word, dad. Thanks for checking. And he just, he would never, ever try to do something like that 10 years ago. You know, I mean, he wouldn't, it it would be, it would be, you know, the traditional, like this, I don't have to be too politically correct, but instead he's like, what is the kind way for me to refer to people of this kind, right? Like how, how can I be compassionate and what is it that they prefer? And I think that that is such a wonderful transformation. And my dad, I know he'll listen to this and I am just so proud. I couldn't be prouder. It's such a rare thing to see like a mid sixties white male have this complete transformation in their lives, but we're proud of you. And I'm so glad he let me share this story. So thank you girls. I wanted to do a hallelujah dance. (laughs) 
heard you share your story of your dad. I mean, you know, what stood out to me with that story was just the, that it's, it's, it was so rooted in love, like in compassion. Like, I don't want to keep thinking this way anymore, treating people like this. Like I'm not overtly racist, but I, I don't want to be a part of that anymore. And like the boldness to speak up. And you, it's just so rare that you see that at his age and at his, with his race. I mean, it, another thing that's just super encouraging, I think. And so I just want to applaud your dad and I know you're so proud of him and we're proud of him too, and look up to him. And that's amazing. Um, I just want to say that I know this was a tough conversation for all of us. I know we all shed some tears, <laughs> um, but I feel like all of our hearts were touched during this conversation. And that was what was beautiful to me that stood out. Um, and like my said earlier, just the transparency and the vulnerability that we had during this episode, which reminds me of our, vul our vulnerability episode earlier on and how that has um, transferred into our conversations now and today. And I think this episode gives you insights into our different perspectives and our stories. And I hope that you enjoy this episode and that we don't stop the conversation here. Um, we have a Facebook group where we hold space for conversations. And this is a conversation we want to hold space for. It's a safe place. Um, there's no judgment and it's unconditional love towards you. If you have questions or comments or anything like that. And if we see anything that's distasteful or disrespectful, we'll shut it down. Please believe. <laughs> so because we don't tolerate that. <laughs> um, we also have our Instagram social media. If you're not following us there, go ahead and check us out there. We, we do some things on there that we, we don't do on Facebook, which is we go live too, as well as talk about our episodes. So we hope you can connect with us there too. And if you have any feedback you can send us personal messages on this topic if you're not comfortable in an open forum and we'd be glad to discuss it with you thank you katie and my for this discussion and i love you both and just sending love to everybody today thanks for taking the time to listen today be sure to write a review and follow us wherever you get your podcasts you can also follow us on instagram at fem collective podcast and continue the discussion by joining our fem collective facebook group until next time this is Femme Collective, where it's all about empowering connection through her perspective.